Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, spoke to us about the railway blockade. Ken Coates from the University of Saskatchewan, Professor Ken Coates, the author of Treaty Peoples, Finding Common Ground with Aboriginal Canadians, joined us, as did Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases specialist on the COVID-19 developments and expectations. Camille Caramali the Global News reporter who was at the Belleville, Ontario Railroad blockade site spoke with us, as did Daryl Bricker, Ipsos president, on a poll of eight nations and public opinion and concerns about the coronavirus. And Masi Alinejad, an Iranian expatriate, broadcaster and author, had a lot to say about Justin Trudeau's friendly exchange with the Iranian foreign minister. Premier Mo joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Premier, thank you very much for the time. And uh, is it clearly? It's your impression that the rule of law has been shoved to the to the sidelines. Well, thank you, Roy. And as always, uh, the best intro music in the business on the Roy Green Show here. Um, but you're you're right. Uh, you know, I would agree with the Prime Minister uh, to a point with respect to. Um, our professional police law, police forces, law enforcement agencies, they have the discretion as to how uh, they enforce the law uh, in different uh, situations across the nation. But uh, as I always say, parliamentarians, legislators, they create the law. The courts interpret that law, and it is, at the end of the day, um, on our law enforcement agencies to ensure that that law is uh, being followed and enforced. And uh, we have two of those points have been uh, taken, have taken place in this situation. Uh, it's now on our law enforcement agencies to, to enforce the law. They have a discretion as to how they do that. Um, I would say they don't have a discretion as to whether or not they do that. Do you feel that uh, the law enforcement should be doing more than it's doing now, Premier, becoming directly engaged and involved? Well, I think, I think it's fair to say, and, and the courts agree, uh, there's been an injunction put in place and, uh, and, uh, and uh, certified by uh, the courts uh, that the law is being broken. So, it is uh, now time for uh, law enforcement agencies to ensure that that is not the case on a on a uh, on a long term basis. And listen, um, we have the right in this country to disagree. We have the right to protest. Uh, we don't have the right to do it legally. What disturbs you most, uh, as Premier of Saskatchewan, given that the federal government has said clearly it's up to the provinces to take necessary action? They're not going to do it. No, of course not. And. and and here, Saskatchewan is an example uh, with respect to why this is not in provincial jurisdiction. First and foremost, our rail lines, our pipelines, the construction of them, the, the operation of them lies squarely in the federal uh, jurisdiction. Um, in Saskatchewan, uh, we are being greatly impacted by uh, these uh, shutdowns of our rail lines. We have grain, uh, trains with grain on them stopped across this nation. Uh, Saskatchewan Energy is on these trains. It shouldn't be. It should be in a pipeline. Uh, but it is on these trains that uh, stopped across the nation. We have uh, potash on those trains. I talked um, at the uh, Scotty tournament, Scotty's Tournament of Hearts here in Moose I talked with the, the head of the National Forestry Association, who says uh, they're very, very challenged right now with this uh, rail slowdown. We don't have a blockade in Saskatchewan. Tremendous impacts being felt uh, by the economy of our province due to blockades in other parts of the nation. Uh, Saskatchewan has no provincial authority to act in other areas of this nation. Um, 
rail lines, pipelines, our transportation infrastructure, the construction and operation of it, the safe operation of it, squarely lies within the federal jurisdiction. And they uh, need to uh, direct our law enforcement agencies to ensure that the law is being followed. And the Prime Minister, Premier, uh, I would venture you might agree, should be here. Well, if, if one of his ministers is not going to direct the, the, the law enforcement agencies uh, uh, to ensure that the law is being enforced, again, uh, how that is enforced is at their discretion. But if he's not going to allow one of his ministers uh, to do that, uh, then he should come home and, and ensure that that occurs. Premier Mo, uh, rail blockades, legislature blocking, intersection blocking, it isn't all in support of hereditary chiefs in British Columbia opposing the gas links pipeline and or TMX. Some of these people are anarchists, and there's a great concern that, uh, that I have, and I would imagine many people would share it, that if you don't react and don't act to enforce laws and enforce court decisions, all it does is empower blockades blockaders and anarchists to become more emboldened well this, this is a challenge and i you know i heard a, a, to quote uh, my predecessor former premier brad wall on an interview uh, the other the other evening uh, he had asked the question is is canada governable uh, when you have uh, people that are coming out against uh, virtually everything against how we create wealth in our communities uh, right across uh, this nation and you're we're feeling this uh, blockade right across the nation um, um, you know, are against uh, uh, the the relatively sustainable fuels uh, that we have. And let's go back to where this blockade began with the approval of the Coastal Gas Link, uh, uh, a pipeline that would export uh, some of the cleanest LNG in the world uh, to other areas of the world, uh, displacing coal, displacing other much dirtier forms of, uh, of energy. Um, most certainly, uh, if you consider climate change to be a global challenge, uh, this is a product that we should be exporting around the world, making available to other Canadians and, and everyone that we possibly can in the world. This is, uh, we, we are, it's, it's fine to disagree with, with how we create wealth in this nation. It's fine to disagree with some of the cleanest energy and making it available uh, to people in the world. Um, but you need to follow the law. And we have people now that are just not doing that. Yeah. One more question for you, Premier. We, we yes. again go back to the point that that uh, the federal ministers standing in for the Prime Minister of Canada have said that it's up to the provinces to take necessary actions. What what options do you have that the federal government doesn't have? Well, there's not a blockade in Saskatchewan, so I, I guess they're suggesting that we would take. Uh, um, some sort of provincial police force, of which we do not have. We use the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Force, uh, in Saskatchewan. Uh, but we would, uh, with a magic wand, uh, come up with some type of a police, provincial police force. We would then take that provincial police force out of our jurisdiction into a, a place like Ontario or British Columbia and start uh, enacting, uh, enforcing the law in, uh, in another province in this nation. Uh, this is federal in jurisdiction. Nothing could be more realist, uh, uh, more um, more unrealistic or unhelpful, quite frankly, in uh, any federal minister saying that this is provincial in jurisdiction. It's federal in jurisdiction. The construction and operation and safe operation of our pipelines, of our rail infrastructure, is federal in, in jurisdiction. And uh, the federal ministers uh, need to take action to ensure that we can have some sort of order in this great democracy, in this great nation that we call Canada. Professor Coates, always great to talk to you. Thank you very much for the time. And let me get your perspective on what is going on in this country right now. We just talked to the, the premier of your province, 
who described a very critical mass situation. How do you see it? Oh, I think we're in a very difficult and, and dangerous time, to be honest. I don't mean dangerous in a sense of violence. Um, First Nations people and their supporters have, have been disruptive from time to time, but they aren't, aren't violent in that general regard. But no, I think there's a, some pretty big issues on the table. Um, the issue that we're facing right now is this question of pipelines, but the broader issues essentially have to do with the economic well-being of Western Canada, the future of our energy sector, and ironically, uh, one of the most successful examples of Indigenous uh, reconciliation in, in, in Canada, if not in the world. Um, isn't it ironic that we're looking at the Wet'suwet'en situation, the coastal gas link project in northern British Columbia, and we're seeing this as a source of conflict and confrontation, when in fact what it represents is one of those most profound examples of how Indigenous peoples can support and join in with a major resource project uh, with widespread engagement, uh, very promising returns, the opportunity to earn uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, and a real level of cooperation with the, with the resource economy. And instead of us celebrating that, we're talking about uh, the, the protest, which is really unfortunate. And a majority of First Nations support the uh, pipeline. Uh, they do. Along the particular pipeline route, there's, there's, uh, they've signed 20 agreements with uh, uh, chiefs and council. Um, some of which, by the way, have uh, in, you know, some of those communities have integrated hereditary chiefs into their decision-making process, and they've gone along with this particular project. In fact, across Western Canada, we see many, many First Nations who, uh, partly because they can see no other economic alternative, are supporting different kinds of natural resource projects. Um, it's and again, given the context we're sitting in, people have forgotten already that there are at least three different groups. Uh, lining up support to buy the Trans Mountain Expansion public, uh, Project in, in whole or in part. Um, we have uh, different two or three other major infrastructure projects being proposed by Indigenous groups and organizations. Um, we've never seen a level of engagement quite like this. Uh, it doesn't mean there aren't important legal issues on the table. It never means that there aren't people, Indigenous people, who oppose uh, resource development in the same way you can find people in Calgary who are not in favor of pipelines and oil and gas development. Um, but I think the broader issues are simmering very, very fast, and the boiling over part uh, level is not very far away. Uh, is the federal government doing all it can and all it should? Well, that's a really interesting question. You know, when you time you get to the point of confrontation like this, it's uh, it's clearly a little bit too late. Um, you know, the, the the bottle's overflowing, and trying to pour it all back inside is really, really hard. Um, what the federal government's been doing is saying it's up to the provinces to decide if they want to intervene on a on a legal basis and arrest the people who are blocking railways and interfering with other activities, and that's technically the case. Um, the government is now sending somebody to talk to the Mohawk. The Minister uh, of Indigenous Affairs is going down to talk to the Mohawk and sort of try to get um, that group of, uh, of protesters, it's a fairly small group, uh, sort of on side. Um, it's, it's late in the game, to be honest. Uh, the Prime Minister's interventions have been meek, timid even, uh, to this point. Um, and it basically shows that on the federal government's point of view, they've taken two of their biggest commitments and put them on a collision course. On the one hand, you have reconciliation with Indigenous peoples, as a, the government always said, was, you know, we won't be judged by our, our success in this, in this area. Um, and secondly, the very strong commitments to uh, climate change uh, policies and processes, uh, particularly to the Paris Accord, and these are now smashing into each other. And, you know, basically what, he's, what the Prime Minister has done and what the Liberal government have done is encourage both. Encourage Aboriginal people to be more assertive, which they're doing, um, as appropriately. 
uh, and also encouraging uh, climate change act advocates to be very um, assertive, if not aggressive, at, at exactly the same time. And it's not that Aboriginal folks are not uh, not concerned about the climate and are concerned about environmental protection, uh, but right now they are very much more preoccupied with uh, autonomy, uh, making their own decisions about the future and deciding how they want to evolve in the in the years to come. And that's their top priority right now for most of the First Nations people, most of the First Nation governments. governments. Um, but we also see a crossover where you're getting non-Indigenous people associated with the environmental sector and associated with uh, climate change, uh, anti, anti, or climate change uh, movements, uh, sort of trying to engage with the Indigenous protesters or Indigenous people on their rights and sort of mixing and crossing over between these two groups. And uh, one of the concerns has to be that this situation, as it is now, because of the timidity, to use your word, of the Prime Minister's uh, lack of action or feeble action, uh, this will just repeat itself. If there's another issue that, uh, that, that, that appeals to whatever the position of a, ver- of a certain group is concerned, whether it's anarchy or whether they have a, a specific issue in mind, it's just going to repeat itself. That's always a problem. If you don't sort of set the rules in place and enforce them properly, you're essentially opening up yourself to sort of, a, a, as you say, a repeat of a similar sort of process. Um, what I'm also worried about, given what I said before, the fact that this is a time of, of uh, reconciliation, when in fact the natural resource uh, economy is actually the front lines of reconciliation in Canada. We're seeing hundreds of examples of collaboration and cooperation. Then I'm also seeing right now lots of signs of, in, of non-Indigenous people who are getting frustrated at Indigenous people generally. Um, it's a fairly small percentage of the people who are causing most of the noise, and it's a very tiny percentage of Indigenous people who are involved in the uh, uh, blockades and, the, and the, 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 rail, the rail closures and things of that sort. But people don't generally de- drill down very far. They see this as Indigenous people getting in their face, and interfering with their lives and with their economic opportunity. And I really worry that the, the very fragile and always very skeptical, questionable, non-Indigenous support for Aboriginal rights could actually start to fade. Um, and we don't need that right now. We actually need lots more engagement and support uh, with for in, Indigenous aspiration, Indigenous political development, economic development. And I worry that people are going to drag this into a sort of a them versus us kind of scenario, which is not an accurate representation of the situation. Do you see a quick resolution to this situation? There's no quick resolution to this situation. The res- situation will resolve itself, I think, if the Wet'suwet'en people sort of gather together um, as, a, as a community without a, outside interference and decide how they're going to deal with two issues. One is the pipeline, obviously, but the second one is the long ongoing role of um, hereditary chiefs. That really is ultimately going to be a local decision. It would be ironic in the extreme if hereditary chiefs had to go to the Canadian courts uh, to get a validation of their role within uh, in, within what's so what in society, um, they have to the community has to deal with this for themselves okay. and come up with a sort of a workable plan. Um, so I don't think this is a situation where we need outsiders, uh, uh, government officials, academics, certainly not uh, people, uh, climate change advocates, All right. mixing it up. Professor uh, it's Coates, a huge technical issue for them, and I wish them the best in resolving it. Always good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time today. You're more than welcome. Take care. Dr. Isaac Bogosh is with us, University of Toronto infectious diseases physician and scientist, public health and global health issues. And Dr. Bogosh, you're interrupting your vacation uh, to do this 
segment with me today. I mean, we track you down everywhere, and I can't tell you how grateful we are to be able to speak to you because you provide us with some terrific information that we're all hungry for, as we found out through that Ipsos poll. So, obviously, thanks for having me on. And, you know, yeah, I planned a vacation uh, probably six months ago with my wife. Of course, we had no idea there was going to be an epidemic at that time. Uh, and my wife would have probably killed me if I tried to cancel or delay it because of uh, this hard work. So I've been sort of keeping up to date while, while abroad. But, uh, yeah, no, always happy to chat. Well, please thank your wife for allowing you to speak with us today. We really appreciate that. And when the World Health Organization says COVID-19 is global public enemy number one worse than terrorism? That's not going to settle people down much. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, at least they're taking it seriously, and, and certainly they are taking it seriously. And really, I think what they're rather concerned about is, you know, if this cannot be contained in China, and if this spreads throughout the world, you know, there will be a lot of people that become sick with this, and we know that, uh, you know, sadly, some people will succumb to this illness. Now, we know that the vast majority of people, there's just more and more data supporting the notion that the vast majority of people will have, you know, a mild or a moderate infection and, and, and recover. But even if a very small percentage of people uh, get very sick and require hospitalizations, and, and, and sadly, even if a smaller people uh, pass away from this infection, if the total number of people infected globally is large, then even though that's a small proportion of people that succumb to the illness, it still ends up being a large number of people. Yeah. And I think that's why they're, they're so concerned about this and really putting an all-hands-on-deck strategy approach here. What's your sense about how China is handling the emergent situation? I mean, there's a photograph that's circulating around the world on social media and in news now of the uh, Chinese, uh, two Chinese people wearing, they're wearing face masks, but they also have transparent, looks like transparent garbage bags over their bodies to protect themselves. And they're standing beside a police officer who's wearing a, you know, a, a, a mask. That sort of thing does not, again, doesn't engender confidence. Uh, do, do you have a sense that uh, the China, first of all, are they doing what everything they can? <laughs> we, I don't know if we know that. And then secondly, yeah. it, it, are they likely to be able to stop? Well, it's too late now. But are they li- are they likely able to preclude the virus from spreading internationally more quickly than it would without proper intervention? Yeah, I mean, two great questions with two very challenging answers. So I think the first the first one is, you know, are they doing everything they can? And the answer is, I think the answer currently is yes. Now, could they have recognized this a little bit earlier? Could they have initiated control measures a little bit earlier? I don't know. I'm not entirely sure. And I think when the dust settles at the end of the day and we're able to look at all the information, you know, we'll have a better answer to that. But currently, I mean, there has never been a public health um, initiative enacted that is so large and so broad that affects so many people in such a short period of time in the history of humankind. I mean, we have restricted travel and transportation for close to 70 million people there. Um, And then, of course, there's other issues like social distancing and other initiatives that have been uh, have been enacted throughout the country. So, you know, that's that's about as heavy handed an approach as one is going to get. And uh, and certainly, you know, it's it's incredible to watch this unfold because, you know, this has never really been attempted before. 
And related to the second part of the question, you know, is it going to work? I got to tell you, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking at the same data that everyone else has, you know, and we're all trying to interpret the data that's coming out of China. You know, sometimes I think, you know what, maybe they're doing a really good job here. Maybe this will be contained. Um, and then other times I think, you know what, maybe, maybe not, you know, maybe it's, it's just slowing down the spread of virus and allowing the world to prepare for a scenario where the virus cannot be contained. And I think, you know, there's obviously we've heard from very high level public health officials saying essentially the same thing. All efforts should be in China to contain this, but we still have to be prepared for the scenario where it is not contained. And, you know, this is coming from, you know, high level public health officials throughout the world. I think that's I think that's very fair. What do we measure this COVID-19 against? Do we measure it against SARS? Many people don't remember those SARS that well. Or do we measure it against the annual reality of flu, which also claims a lot of lives each year? What What's the measuring? What's the yardstick here? I don't really, you know, it's actually, it's nice to think about it in, in reference to other infections and look for similarities and, and, and some differences. And I think, you know, these parallels can be helpful in certain discussions, but it's essentially at the end of the day, this is a standalone um, issue. And of course, we don't have all the answers yet. Of course, there's more data that sort of changes our opinion on, on how uh, you know, severe infections are, how widespread this is, it's been transmitted. And, and certainly within the close to two short months that we've only known that this has existed, you know, there's been um, a rapid understanding uh, and knowledge gain and also knowledge transfer about, you know, what this virus is and some of the properties of the virus and some of the sort of clinical and public health questions have, have started to be addressed. Um, of course, there's been comparisons to flu. Of course, there's been comparisons to SARS and MERS and other coronaviruses. Um, and I mean, I think those are helpful early on, but I think the many in the general public, plus in the scientific and medical communities are seeing that, you know, we're sort of treating this as, as an individual uh, virus. So, you know, for example, there was comparisons to a few days ago, we heard of uh, greater than a thousand deaths related to this uh, novel coronavirus, the COVID-19. And we said, okay, the deaths have surpassed SARS. You know, that's an interesting metric, but it's not entirely helpful because we know SARS is a completely different infection. Far more severe illness, far fewer cases, far higher case fatality rate. And, you know, for example, this one has, we certainly have way more infected individuals compared to SARS, but the fatality rate is way smaller. And, you know, the transmission dynamics might be slightly different as well. So on some hand, on one hand, some of these comparisons are helpful. On the other hand, you know, I think now we know enough about it that we can sort of talk about it in its own right. Emil, great to talk to you. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, I always seem to talk to you during emergent situations, which is fine because you give us great reports. What's happening where you are right now? Well, thank you for that, first of all. And uh, second of all, uh, the blockade is still ongoing here. Uh, Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller, uh, he came here at around 10, 10.30-ish this morning. Uh, there was uh, quite a show around his appearance in that uh, there were uh, his security behind him. He uh, marched along the rail tracks and walked right up to the blockade, where he met was met with a, a wall of protesters, and then they let him through once he introduced himself. Um, and uh, then they propped up a table and chairs, and he sat down right there 
where the blockade was happening. Uh, something no politician has been able to do so far is cross uh, that blockade here at the rail tracks in Belleville. Uh, and so he sat down for about an hour here right in the open uh, with several of the Mohawk First Nation leaders to discuss uh, this, what is now a 10-day blockade uh, since uh, the uh, Mohawk First Nation leaders and members and their supporters have been camped out here near the rail tracks and uh, via and cp rail have said that has deterred them uh, from having any of their trains pass through for the last 10 days in fact via just got back to us saying that they have had to cancel about 300 trains and uh, it's affected more than 60,000 passengers so a very uh, interesting uh, back and forth with uh, the First Nations group and Mark Miller as they sat down. It was more listening for uh, Minister Miller than it was talking, and uh, the leaders voiced their concerns, their displeasure uh, in obviously what we know now is a major countrywide protest that's happening with Wet'suwet'en supporters, as you very well know. Um, they're all protesting an LNG, a liquefied natural gas proposed pipeline that's set to go through their traditional territory in northern BC. Um, but the First Nations group here is also protesting and standing up against uh, uh, other what they call injustices. They believe that they've been forgotten and that, that they don't get any attention or government's help anymore. So they're also looking out for their own interests. Uh, Roy, sorry for rambling on, but uh, just it, so much has happened in the past few hours. I'm just trying to get you all caught up. No, I appreciate but it. Now, now it's gone from the actual blockade at the rail tracks uh, after an hour of sitting at that plastic table at that makeshift uh, meeting desk uh, out in the open, they've actually taken the meeting inside to the Mohawk Community Center. That's about a five to ten minute drive from here. And uh, they've all been sitting inside with members of the Mohawk First Nation. Uh, there were cameras and some media allowed at this open uh, meeting, but none whatsoever allowed in that closed door meeting. And that has been happening for about two to three hours now so we haven't really heard from uh miller's staff minister miller's staff in terms of what those discussions are like so far because even they haven't been allowed inside so was uh was minister miller actually speaking with the blockaders or was he speaking only with uh with 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 chiefs and and leaders of the uh, of the mohawk community well it was quite a big group so there were the mohawk first nation leaders that was kind of at the forefront on the other side of the desk. And if you can imagine, it was uh, Minister Miller and his security and support staff on the other side of this plastic desk that was situated right on the railway tracks. And behind the First Nation leaders, there was actually a group of First Nations members. So uh, quite a large uh, gathering there uh, as everyone was trying to listen in on the discussions. But once again... Um, it was more one-sided, as uh, you know. Minister Miller did say that uh, it is a little tense, it's a little volatile, and he's here to open that dialogue okay. again, and that included a lot of listening on his part. How much police presence, Camille? Well, here at the blockade, we're only seeing two police vehicles well back there. We sort of had to check in with them uh, to say, hey, we're here, and that was really it. Uh, they are, I think, you know, seeing that we're at day 10 of this and any injunction that has been brought forward has been uh, destroyed or just thrown over their shoulders. Uh, police feel like 
they're just sort of in a watch and see mode right now. Can't really do much, so they're a bit passive okay. at this point. Haven't really they've been really sitting back and just watching, just as we have. How close are you permitted to get to the actual blockade? And do you have an opportunity? Have you had an opportunity to speak to the people effectively blocking the tracks? Uh, not really, not at all, actually. So there are these cones that have been set up. Uh, a few, I would say, uh, at least. Uh, a, a few meters be, uh, back of the rail tracks themselves. So we can get a good look at the setup. There's tents, there's massive flags uh, of different band councils, of different indigenous groups. And uh, there's a big snow plow as well, right front and center. And you can see that very clearly. But as soon as we cross the little uh, orange neon cones that they have set up, uh, there's a few of them or uh, one or two of them that sort of play uh, the role, I, I suppose, as a bouncer of a nightclub. They, they make sure that we don't cross that or we get yelled at pretty sternly. So uh, we try to keep our distance. We're, not, we're here as observers and trying to report the news. We're not trying to get in the middle of this meeting here. So yeah. um, I wouldn't call it very aggressive, but uh, a couple of them uh, really aren't uh, giving us any leniency to get even close to the tracks here. Okay. And Miller's still there, the minister's still there, but they've gone to the community center now to continue their meeting. Is that it? Exactly. And we were sort of outside of the community center getting shots of uh, the community center as well as talking to people who were leaving. And we did talk to a couple of people, but uh, a few of the people, actually, this happened just minutes ago, they spotted us. uh, And we were across the street. We weren't trying to hide, but they spotted us and they said, look, uh, you guys have to get out of here. They weren't even comfortable with us being across the street. So we were outside for a couple of hours uh, before they actually knew that we were there. We thought we were pretty evident that we were there, but uh, they did see us, and then they said no media even across the street from us, um, and uh, we're back at the blockade now. So it's been a little bit of traveling back and forth between the two yeah. sites here, but we know for a fact that Minister Miller is still in the Mohawk Community Center uh, talking to First Nation members. Ipsos Public Affairs did a major poll of uh, folks in eight big countries to see how they feel about the virus, what their sense is, what their expectations are. Daryl Bricker is the president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. He joins us on the Roy Green Show. Daryl, thank you for the time. Um, what was the what was the rationale behind the poll? I, I find it fascinating. The, the eight countries are all major countries. Well, Ipsos is a global company, Ryan. And, you know, we're uh, involved in research all over the world, and this is one of those things uh, uh, that is becoming a global issue quite rapidly. Yeah. And the idea that you can actually poll the world now, which is something you couldn't do a decade ago, really makes it incumbent on people who can do it to really get some sense of what's happening with global public opinion. So I happen to be Canadian. I happen to live in, you know, in this area, but uh, I'm responsible for this polling all over the world. So it's great that we've got this ability to do it now, and we decided to use it for this. Yeah, I find it fascinating that we can actually see and find out what other people in other parts of the world are, what their sense is about it. Australia, Japan, the United States, uh, the UK, Germany, Russia, they were all part of your, uh, of your, of your right. survey, of your poll on this, on this uh, uh, COVID-19. And a significant proportion, a majority of people, just reading from your news release, across eight large countries say the coronavirus poses a high or very high threat to the world. What percentage? What are you finding out, Daryl? 
Well, what we're finding out is exactly what you just said. Uh, people are really looking at it very closely and watching it very closely. And the reason for that is they believe that the news reports that they're seeing on this are pretty accurate, that it's not being you know, hyped up uh, by uh, anybody in, in the media and that it really does represent some sort of a threat. Uh, also, uh, they don't feel that they're getting a lot of information out of China that they can really rely on as to whether or not it's under control. So uh, they're sitting back and they're saying, you know, we're seeing the count rise every day. Uh, we're seeing that it's, a, you know, the potential for fatalities is there. Uh, we don't necessarily see it happening in our families right now or even in our neighborhoods, but we do believe that there's some possibility that it could come here. So people are watching it nervously. They're thinking about their own behavior. Uh, they're thinking about what the government can do uh, to, uh, to stop the, uh, the virus coming to, say, for example, Canada. And they're sitting back and they're, and they're watching very closely. Is that real fear? Yeah, I would say there is real fear. Uh, right now, uh, it's more of an externalized type fear. So it's not that people are saying, I believe that tomorrow one of my family members might be infected with the coronavirus. But they're certainly seeing it in other places, and they're certainly seeing it getting closer. What I find interesting as well in the polling that you've done at Ipsos, Daryl, is that the awareness factor of uh, COVID-19 is just absolutely huge. When you, sometimes when polling is done, I see that 50, 60 percent of the population may be aware of a particular story, and I ask myself, how come not everybody's aware of it? And then I realize not everybody does what I do for a living. But this is a, this is a story that has really grasped a huge majority of people particularly in these eight countries. Yeah, it has. And, and the reason is because of life and death. Yeah. And they also see that, uh, um, th th that this is something that is spreading. And they also see that there's, it's not something where anybody has indicated that there's either a cure or a way to really protect yourself. And, and for anybody, that's scary. Talk to us about what you find out about what people say is necessary as far as control of the virus is concerned. Well, there's, there's two avenues for that. One of them is what would you do yourself, and then the other one is what would you like your public authorities to do. Uh, and in Canada, uh, the uh, desire to see some pretty strong action by the government to make sure that it doesn't come here is, uh, is, is really evident. So majorities supporting things like, for example, uh, banning flights from China, quarantining people uh, in, uh, in the community, uh, transit um, organizations, any places that people gather publicly, uh, uh, those places, uh, people, uh, organizations taking steps to make sure that uh, potential for uh, for the virus to spread is, isn't there. But the ones that are really uh, interesting are the ones that relate to travel uh, and uh, what they and and uh, and people coming to and from those places. And, and, and right now, Canadians don't really have a lot of tolerance for that. Masi Alina Jad joins us. Uh, She's an expatriate Iranian journalist with Voice of America. She's the founder of White Wednesdays, and she's the author of My Stealthy Freedom. We spoke with Masi following the shooting down of the Ukraine Flight 752 and her conversation with the families of Canadians who were killed on that, on that plane. And Masi Alinajad is back with us. You can find her on Twitter at Masi Alinajad. Masi, what is your view of uh, the way Trudeau greeted and exchanged pleasantries with the foreign minister of Iran yesterday? It is absolutely disturbing. It is absolutely um, heartbreaking. I have been spoken. Uh, I have been spoken with families who actually saw the pictures. Let me tell you what they say. One of the family told me that when he saw 
the picture of Justin Trudeau happily shaking the hand of uh, Jabal Zarif, the representative of, um, you know, the murderers, Islamic Republic, killed their family. He said that as soon as I saw, as soon as I saw the photo, it felt like uh, the Ukrainian airplane had been shot down again to me. So, you know why? Because um, they killed 70 uh, 176 people and three days they denied the killings but more important than this the islamic republic stole the body the dead bodies of these people who got killed and did not allow the family to have a proper funeral can you believe that they didn't allow some of the family to leave iran and go to canada to have funerals and now they easily travel abroad and they are being, I mean, welcomed by Justin Trudeau. His body language, let me tell you, let me be very honest with you. Justin Trudeau's body language is very expressive. It's very important. It's kind of booing down to Javad Zari. That bothered and made Iranian people furious. Yeah, and it was very, very disturbing. And you heard, did you, we played his explanation just before we went on air with you, part of it. You heard that, right? I did. But let me, let me tell you something. Uh, imagine after the death of Zahra Kazemi, Iranian-Canadian photojournalist, the Canadian government would come out and just, you know, happily with big smile in their face, going down to Iranian government. What would have been the reaction of the whole world? Right now, after a month of these killings, yes, of course we want Justin Trudeau to look for answer and make the Iranian government accountable. But as I said, the body language, the biggest smile, the blowing down, the welcoming, and even it's saying that it's a pleasure, it's a pleasure to meet you, that doesn't mean that he's looking for an answer or he's trying to... Uh, that That's actually not treating the government who killed its own people and did not allow them to have a public service. So that actually... No, this is not acceptable what um, Justin Trudeau said. I, I mean, it is... Let me tell you, it's not acceptable, not only for me. I don't think the Canadian people accept his justification. There's no happiness here. There's no satisfaction with Mr. Trudeau's performance yesterday, and I don't know how many people are accepting what he had to say afterward. I know I'm not. I just found, I, you know what, I, I immediately when I saw that, I thought of the family members of the Canadians and everyone who was killed on that plane when it was shot out of the sky. You know, there's a lot of talk about it crashing while it was shot out of the sky. And I can only, immediately, Masi, I thought of the people who who were relatives uh, who were on that plane, and they watched the Canadian Prime Minister interact in such a manner, just weeks later, with the the Iranian representative. And that's really, really disturbing. How do you suspect, how do you expect the Iranians view Justin Trudeau? You know, to be honest with you, Justin Trudeau played an amazing role when um, he was meeting with the families of those people who got killed. And people were happily sharing the pictures of um, Justin Trudeau with the family members of those who got killed. But now they felt betrayed. You know why? Because Javad Zarif, the foreign minister of Islamic Republic, is the same person who said just today that 
um, although the government of Iran cannot decode the black box of uh, the Ukrainian airplane, but they're not going to hand it over. So, and the way actually he shakes hands with this, the same man, the, go- the people of Iran feel betrayed. They cannot understand that. How come Justin Trudeau showed uh, such a sympathy with the families of those people? But right now, his face, his picture going viral, and people actually saying that what Javad Zarif said, that they're not going to hand it over the black box. It's a slap in the face of Justin Trudeau. So that is why we need an you know, immediate um, explanation that what exactly happened behind the doors. And people want to know that. What is the action that Canadian, uh, Canadian government want, want to take? Because right now it has been a m- more than a month and there is no clear answer. People in Iran even still, they are not even allowed to go in on media and talk about their feelings, talk about their families, talk about, uh, you know, the, make the government responsible. So they were all knocking Canada and their demand was having Canada in their own side. But right now, by this picture and the, the body language of Justin Trudeau, people are very, they feel betrayed and they think he's standing in the wrong side of the history. Right One now. of the things that because, we should remember is that after the plane was shot down, after Flight 752 was shot down, there were demonstrations in the streets by the people of Iran against yeah. their government for what they did, and that government was brutal uh, toward the citizens who were demonstrating against the shooting down of the plane. Yes, and you know what happened? Still, those people who joined to the street to protest against Revolutionary Guard and uh, uh, you know, showing their sympathy with the families of those people who got killed, yeah. they were still in prison. And that is actually why we want um, all human rights activists right now. We want international communities to understand that these governments of the Islamic Republics they are not the, just normal government. And the way that the leaders of the free world or media treating them like normal government, that bothers a lot of Iranian people who are like hostage in the hands of these governments. Yeah, we've and seen... Well, we've, know, you, sorry, go ahead. I, I want to I just say that ju- just, I want Justin Trudeau right now to invite five or six family members in, in his office and ask them how did they feel by watching... Because it's not just a photo. There is a video clip as well that you can see that Justin Trudeau goes and he bows down to Javad Zarif, shaking his hand with big, broad smile in his face. I want Justin Trudeau to invite the family of those people who got killed in the Ukrainian airplane and ask them how they feel. They feel betrayed. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.